This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What an awful spectacle does the world exhibit at this instant. One man bestriding the continent of Europe like a colossus and another roaming unbridled on the ocean. But even this is better than that one should rule both elements. Our wish ought to be that he who has armies may not have the dominion of the sea, and that he who has dominion of the sea may be one who has no armies. In this way, we may be quiet, at home at least. Thomas Jefferson, January 11th, 1806. The last few months of 1805 would reshape the course of the Napoleonic Wars and would have a lasting impact on European history and the history of the 19th century. As would be expected of the President of the United States, though, Thomas Jefferson in early 1806 was more concerned about what the events that had played out on the other side of the Atlantic meant for the future of his nation, and little could he have imagined the turbulent waters that lay ahead. Before we dive into that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to my husband, Alex, for providing the intro quote for this episode. In what has been a challenging year for so many, I'm so thankful for his love and support in all of my endeavors, including, but not limited to, this podcast. Avec tout mon cœur, je t'aime, mon mari. Now, Though this episode will deal a good bit with European history, I should note that this is not intended as a comprehensive history of the Napoleonic Wars. There are already podcasters hard at work on that and many histories written on the subject, so there's no need for me to cross that already trodden ground. However, there are certain things that you will need to know in order to fully understand what is to come in the Jefferson administration. Thus, it is through the lens of U.S. presidential history that we'll be approaching this subject matter, and I hope you'll find it informative and useful as we progress on our journey. With that said, let's get started. When last we discussed the war in Europe, known as the War of the Third Coalition, back in episode 3.22, French Emperor Napoleon was actively preparing for an invasion of England. As noted by Napoleon biographer Alan Schoen, quote, The Great Expedition occupied him, Napoleon, more and more. He spent hours on it daily in an attempt to cope with the seemingly insoluble problems that tested even his prodigious abilities. At the same time, the very array and complexity of the difficulties enthralled him, and thus, despite them all, he loved every minute of it. This was his soldier's hour of supreme happiness. Unfortunately for the emperor, the devil was in the details. After the death of the admiral who was intended to be the lead on the invasion called off the initial plans in August 1804, the plan suffered one setback after another. Again from Schoen, quote, After that, everything seemed to go wrong, perhaps because Bonaparte now ignored his own rule that a perpendicular line is always shorter than an oblique one, and employed instead a complex strategy that allowed too many opportunities for chance to intervene. To make matters worse, he continued to juggle too many possibilities. His position was helped somewhat when the Spanish declared war on Great Britain on December 12, 1804, 
after Lord Cornwallis seized, quote, three royal Spanish treasure ships. And shortly thereafter, on January 4th, 1805, the French and Spanish government signed a defense pact in Paris. However, Napoleon, for reasons beyond our scope of examination in this episode, continually proved unable to assemble the force needed to launch an invasion of England that stood a chance of succeeding and the emperor continued to issue one order after another, trying desperately to pull naval resources together to take on the British. In the meantime, British Prime Minister William Pitt was facing his own set of challenges. As noted by Pitt biographer John Ehrman, quote, Pitt's situation at the start of his second ministry was not unlike that at the start of his first. In May 1804, as in December 1783, the material to hand out of office was distinctively weak. The divisions in British politics meant that Pitt had to carefully weigh the prospect of finding coalition partners with finding ministers in whom he could trust as the nation prosecuted renewed war with France. As noted by historian Dick Leonard, quote, the result was that Pitt's government was largely composed of his predecessor Addington's ministers, plus a few of his own strong supporters, notably George Canning. Meanwhile, His political authority relied upon the continued support of the king, George III, and the British monarch's health at this point was precarious at best. It should be noted that George also benefited from Pitt's support against the political ambitions of the Prince of Wales. But on all fronts, it was hard to deny that it was a shaky political house of cards that was being established. Again from Ehrman, quote, There was one more somber feature, however, of which Pitt was well aware. The past three years out of office had been relatively kind to his health. Nevertheless, it had not improved, basically. It remained distinctly suspect, and the sudden relapses could be frightening when they occurred. His state in the spring gave some cause for worry. His appetite had gone, a racking cough persisted, and he was about to shoulder the burden once more with no political elbow room. This did not mean, however, that the new government didn't spring into action to counter the threat that the new conflict presented. Following Pitt's resumption of office as Prime Minister, quote, legislation was quickly passed by Parliament and the war budgets increased. Meanwhile, the new First Lord of the Admiralty, Lord Melville, worked to beef up that branch of the military. From Shome, quote, the number of sailors was increased to some 100,000, to whom were added 20,000 Marines. The number of warships of the Royal Navy was increased from 469 to 551 between 1803 and 1805. The long, irregular shoreline was divided into 28 coastal districts, its shallows and minor ports and estuaries guarded by some 700 or so small gunboats and their crews. In addition to preparing for the nation's defense, Prime Minister Pitt had to work to establish a new coalition to combat the French. While it's beyond our scope to go into the details, as described by Leonard, quote, with infinite difficulty, Pitt now managed to construct the Third Coalition, luring Austria and Russia to put large armies into the field, with Prussia also limbering up. With Russia entering the new alliance in April 1805, followed in August by the Habsburg monarchy in Sweden, the pressure increased on Napoleon to turn his attention from an invasion of Britain to a defense of the French Empire on the continent. By the end of August, Napoleon called off the invasion plans and instead issued new orders for the troops that had been committed to that action to march towards the eastern border. On September 23rd, the emperor officially announced the change of focus in a speech to the French Senate and that he would, quote, be marching at the head of his troops and will put down his arms only after having obtained full 
and complete satisfaction. And after having achieved complete security for his own states as well as those of our allies. As Napoleon made plans to proceed to the front, over a thousand miles or 1,800 kilometers to the southwest of the emperor, another military commander was also making plans to set out. French Vice Admiral Pierre Charles Villeneuve had his combined Franco Spanish fleet at the port of Cadiz, Spain. For reasons beyond the scope of this episode to discuss, Napoleon was highly displeased with Villeneuve's performance, and thus, in the midst of shifting focus to a land operation, had ordered his Minister of Marine and the Colonies, Denis de Cray, to remove the Vice Admiral from command. Unofficially, Villeneuve had learned of this planned change of command, but as he had not received the official order, Villeneuve decided to continue to assert his position and ordered the Franco-Spanish fleet to sail. As the vice admiral wrote to Decay, informing him of the order, quote, if the only thing the Imperial Navy was lacking was a little character and backbone, I believe I could provide them, thereby assuring the crowning of the present mission with a brilliant success. Unfortunately for Villeneuve and the combined fleet, the British were busily patrolling the area, searching for any sign of enemy naval activity. Thus, it was with joy that British Captain Henry Blackwood sent word to Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson that he had, in fact, spotted Villeneuve's fleet. The French emperor had no idea of this development when he set off on September 24th, accompanied by his wife, the Empress Josephine, his first chamberlain, and French Foreign Secretary Talleyrand. They made good progress over the next few days, but on October 1st, they hit a frightening setback. Over dinner with his traveling party, Emperor Napoleon, quote, collapsed in a serious epileptic fit. Falling to the ground, his body racked by convulsions. He vomited and gagged, fighting for breath, foam covering his lips. The emperor had suffered similar fits previously, as Josephine well knew, but neither the first chamberlain nor Talleyrand had ever been witness, though the foreign secretary had heard rumors of previous incidents. Napoleon biographer Alan Schoem attributes this attack to the fact that, quote, the tension over the past few weeks had been too much for him. His entire empire was at stake. As Talleyrand watched the emperor writhe on the ground, Schoem asserts that the foreign secretary, quote, realized just how fragile this new French empire was. Napoleon's attack lasted longer than any one that we know of previously, approximately 45 minutes. At the end of it, though, quote, with a stiff brandy, Napoleon got to his feet, and after enjoining all present to total secrecy about what had just transpired, ordered his post-chase and set out alone in the night for Karlsruhe and the gathering Grande Armée. Without going into too many details of Napoleon's campaign in the East, we should note that he had an early victory in the taking of Ulm and the surrender of 27,000 Austrian troops on October 20th, and French forces proceeded on towards Vienna. However, all was not well on other fronts. A problem of which Napoleon had been aware was that there was a run on the franc and the French financial system seemed to be teetering on the brink of collapse. On the military front, he and the world would soon hear shocking news. The spotting of Vice Admiral Villeneuve's fleet by the British led to a confrontation off the Cape of Trafalgar on October 21st. In terms of sheer numbers, the 32 ships of the Franco-Spanish combined fleet outnumbered Nelson's 27 ships. However, it quickly became apparent who had the more prepared and skilled force. 
By the end of the day, the French and Spanish lost 22 ships and suffered 5,568 dead and wounded. The British, by contrast, did not lose a single ship and had 1,690 casualties. Lord Nelson would prove to be one of those lives lost in the conflict, but his legacy lived on long past his demise. Villeneuve would survive the Battle of Trafalgar, but he was captured by the British and taken back to England as a prisoner. As noted by Scholm, quote, The French Imperial Navy would gradually be rebuilt, but with its spirit and morale shattered, it would never again pose a serious threat to Great Britain during Napoleon's reign, or indeed to any country, for many decades to come. It is difficult to exaggerate the importance of the Battle of Trafalgar in what was to come in the history of the Napoleonic Wars, or indeed in the history of U.S.-European relations for the next 10 years. Think back on this victory and the enhanced status of the British Navy on the high seas as we discuss Anglo-American relations in upcoming episodes, dear listener. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Not only was the loss at Trafalgar infuriating to the emperor, but it threatened Napoleon's entire empire as the uncertainty caused more runs on French banks. Even with French troops marching into Vienna on November 14th, the financial crisis continued unabated back at home. Part of the uncertainty lay in the fact that, despite Napoleon's victories on the field, it was clear that the British would continue to pose a threat on the high seas, and the Russian Tsar Alexander had augmented the Allied forces in Bavaria, bringing their troop numbers to over 80,000. Napoleon's troops, meanwhile, were fatigued after having been pushed so hard by the emperor thus far in the campaign. The nerves of the commanders of the Grande Armée were likewise strained, and already existing frictions caused numerous fallouts between Napoleon's commanders, some of which would have long-term ramifications for the future stability of the command structure of the French Empire's military. The stress went all the way to the top. Again from Scholm, quote, Napoleon too was not his old self. Everything seemed to be going wrong, compounded by disorders in the rear of the army where thousands of troops had deserted and rampaged through conquered villages. In the face of all this, Napoleon was still able to come up with a plan which involved luring the Allied army into a trap at a position around, quote, five to six miles west of the village of Austerlitz on the brun Olmutz Road. After buying some extra time with a request for an interview with Tsar Alexander that naturally never had any chance of finding a peaceful resolution, the Allied troops assembled at Austerlitz on December 1st, and that evening, Emperor Napoleon, quote, made the rounds of all frontline troops who, in their great enthusiasm, lit hundreds of straw and pine torches, tens of thousands cheering, Vive l'Empereur, over and over again their voices carrying across the few hundred yards separating the French and Allied positions. A thick fog settled in that evening, and thus, on December 2nd, the French positions were still hidden from view. Despite that, quote, 278 Russian and Austrian big guns suddenly opened fire on them. The Battle of Austerlitz had begun. Fighting went on through the morning and into mid-afternoon until finally, around 3 o'clock, most of the fighting was at an end. 
Napoleon's victory was not only complete, but it was brutal, as he had issued orders to take no prisoners. Thus, 15,000 Allied troops were dead. And finally, after Napoleon relented in the last hour of the battle and allowed for it, 12,000 prisoners were taken, including eight generals. Russian Tsar Alexander and Habsburg Emperor Franz had fled from the scene, though Alexander had nearly been captured as his own guard had abandoned him in the frenzied retreat. Coming one year exactly after Napoleon's coronation, the victory at Austerlitz put the French Empire on much firmer footing. With the Allied forces decimated, the financial crisis in France subsided. Meanwhile, the Third Coalition quickly folded. Prussia, who had been poised to join the coalition, instead reaffirmed its friendship with the French Empire. Likewise, the Habsburg Empire quickly capitulated and entered into the Treaty of Pressburg on December 26, 1805 that led to more land concessions as well as a recognition of Napoleon as the King of Italy. It would take a little longer to play out, but the Habsburg concessions would ultimately lead, a few months later, to the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire that had lasted for a thousand years since the time of Charlemagne and the creation in July 1806 of the Confederation of the Rhine, another French puppet state in the short term, but in the long term, the nucleus of an idea of a unified Germany, which historian Charles Estelle describes as being seen later on, quote, as one of Napoleon's greatest and most lasting achievements. We're getting far ahead of ourselves, though, and should now turn back to the situation in Great Britain. As with many of his countrymen, Prime Minister Pitt had been overjoyed at the news of the victory at Trafalgar. However, there was still much to be done. Beyond just Allied military operations in Europe, Britain used the opportunity to send a naval expedition to the Cape of Good Hope in southern Africa, and on January 18, 1806, forces of the Batavian Republic surrendered the Cape Colony to Britain. Those who have read ahead know that this would have major ramifications for what would ultimately become the Republic of South Africa. But I digress. Pitt's time would be focused in the latter part of 1805 on trying to come to terms with the Prussians to bring them into the war on the side of the Allies. The prospects continued to dim as the year drew closer to its end, and upon the receipt of news from Austerlitz, it was clear that the door for a stronger coalition had closed, and instead, Britain was at another crisis point. This was a crisis, however, for which the Prime Minister was not physically capable of meeting. He had traveled to Bath in December to seek treatment to restore his health, but a bout of gout incapacitated him even further. By early January 1806, quote, he found it hard to take his place at the dinner table and ate very little, drinking a glass of Madeira and water. The Prime Minister was finally well enough to travel to his home in Putney, but a contemporary upon his arrival remarked upon being, quote, deeply shocked by the changed tone of his voice and his struggle for breath as he climbed the stairs. As the month went on, Pitt's condition continued to deteriorate until finally, in the early morning hours of January 23rd, Prime Minister William Pitt passed away at the age of 46. Though his death has been previously attributed to cancer, more recent medical assessments of reports of his condition have concluded that a peptic ulcer was likely the cause of his untimely demise. In the 21st century, this condition, quote, could have been cured in a few days by therapy with antibiotic and acid-reducing drugs. At the time, though, there was no treatment available. So much about this time in European history would have long-term ramifications. Pitt's tenures as Prime Minister can certainly be added to that tally. As described by Dick Leonard, quote, 
The younger Pitt was a new kind of prime minister, compared to whom the great majority of his predecessors were amateur dilettantes. No premier before, and few since, has dedicated his life so completely to his calling, working exceptionally long hours, suppressing most of his other interests and possible sources of pleasure, and establishing such command over the political scene. He was able to expand the informal, if not the formal, powers of the premiership, establishing his authority, at least to a limited extent, over other departments than the treasury. Partly because he had to deal with an exceptionally opinionated and stubborn monarch whom he was reluctant to challenge directly, Pitt was never able to establish his own right to appoint, shift, or dismiss ministers, nor to be accepted as the only minister to have direct access to the king and the sole right to advise him. Nevertheless, the fact that he was known to seek these objectives made it easier for his successors to pursue them from more pliable monarchs. Despite the future impact of Pitt's reshaping of the office of Prime Minister, the loss of Pitt at this time of crisis would cause a crisis of leadership at the worst possible time. The person who would be turned to as Pitt's successor would, on paper, appear to be a natural fit for the role. We've talked about William Grenville, the first Baron Grenville, on a number of occasions in this podcast, most recently in episode 3.22. To give a quick synopsis, though, Lord Grenville had served as a trusted agent for Pitt for decades, having been first brought into Pitt's cabinet in early 1789, and two years later, he moved up to the role of Foreign Secretary. He remained in this role for the next 10 years, and during his tenure in the cabinet, Grenville gained the reputation of being a reformer and innovator in terms of process, something that he shared with his father, who had similarly led reforms in the Treasury. It should be noted that, to date, there have been only two father-son British Prime Minister combos, and those are the Pitts and the Grenvilles. But I digress. We've discussed Grenville's falling out with Pitt and his alignment with the traditional opposition led by Charles James Fox. With the weakening of the Addington ministry, Grenville had pushed the idea of a quote-unquote ministry of all the talents that would be led by Pitt, but which would include himself, Fox, and Addington. However, King George III had objected to the idea of including Fox in a new ministry, and as Grenville was at the time coordinating with Fox in political efforts, he declined any suggestion that he should serve in the new Pitt ministry. Still, upon Pitt's death, his ministry turned to Grenville as its new leader. King George let the ministry know of his desire to draw upon the new prime minister from among their ranks, but they strongly recommended that the king appoint Grenville to the post. Despite the king's invitation that Grenville form, quote, a government with no exclusions, an acknowledgement that he was no longer in a position to block Fox's return to office, Lord Grenville was reluctant to accept the post and instead suggested Earl Spencer as an alternate. Again from Leonard, quote, it was not only diffidence and a sense of weariness which made him hesitate, but also a concern for his own income, despite the fact that the death of his brother-in-law two years earlier had left him a very wealthy man. From a leadership standpoint, there were problems with Grenville. As described by Leonard, quote, he, Grenville, was regarded as stiff and haughty and completely lacking in small talk, nor did his personal appearance do him any favors. He had bulging eyes, an oversized head, and a more than ample posterior, was untidily dressed and short-sighted, which meant that he wore spectacles or an eyeglass from an early age. Grenville also suffered from a certain diffidence which inhibited him from putting himself forward. Grenville, for all his abilities, was a natural number two rather than a leader. 
Still, with Fox working to introduce legislation that would ensure that Grenville would continue to temporarily financially benefit from a lucrative governmental post that would be placed into a trusteeship, Grenville finally relented and put forward his quote-unquote ministry of all the talents to the king. Addington, now having been raised to the peerage as Viscount Sidmouth, would join the new ministry as Lord Privy Seal, while Fox would join as Foreign Secretary. The only irreconcilable group to this grand coalition were the Pittites. As the new government came together, though there may have been concerns in Britain about the developments, there was one person in London who saw the coming of the Ministry of All the Talents as positive news. U.S. Minister to Britain James Monroe, upon his return to London following the failure of his special mission to Spain, as discussed last episode, found that his absence had changed nothing with regards to his negotiations with the British government. As described by Monroe biographer Tim McGrath, Monroe, quote, believed his absence from London might make Pitt's government grow fonder of a new treaty. He was wrong. Indeed, as a sign of the continued dissonance, on the day Monroe arrived back in the British capital, a British admiralty court condemned a Boston merchant ship, the Essex, that had been bound for France from the French West Indies and was seized en route by a British naval ship. In essence, as Monroe biographer Harry Ammon asserts, this decision, quote, condemned the neutral carrying trade between enemy colonies and the mother country and further complicated Anglo-American relations. Still, despite Monroe's frustrations and desires, both in terms of preference and his personal finances, to return to the U.S., he also had a fervent desire for negotiating a new treaty with Great Britain before retiring back to private life. As he wrote to President Jefferson on October 6, 1805, quote, It does not appear to me to be a perfectly safe step to leave the business with this government in the present unsettled state. Thus, he persisted through the end of 1805 and into 1806 until the news reached him of Pitt's demise. For Monroe, the game-changing development was not Grenville becoming prime minister, but rather Charles James Fox becoming foreign secretary. Not only was Fox known to be, quote, sympathetic to American interest, but Monroe had developed a cordial relationship with Fox while making the rounds in the British political and social circles. Monroe was confident that in Fox, he had found someone in the British government with whom he could work and who had the authority to see matters through. One problem remained, though, whether it would actually be Monroe who worked with Fox. Monroe had, on several occasions, expressed his desire to both Jefferson and Madison to return home from his service abroad, and in January 1806, Monroe likely felt an even greater longing to be back in Virginia when he read the obituary of, quote, the man who had served as his surrogate father, benefactor, and political mentor since 1772, Joseph Jones. Added to that were rumors going around London that Monroe was likely to be replaced as U.S. Minister to Britain, possibly by John Quincy Adams. With all of that, it is not surprising that Monroe booked passage for himself and his family back to the United States for April 1806. With Fox's coming into office as Foreign Secretary, however, Monroe changed his plans. He canceled the voyage back home and wrote to Madison of his desire to remain in London a letter that he made sure to get on the first ship headed back to America that he could find. We'll have to wait to see if Monroe's optimism at the prospects for successful negotiations with the new British government would play out. But before we part ways, I'd like to take a moment to turn to that other key U.S. diplomat in Europe at the time, the one based in Paris. 
We haven't had a chance to talk much about the new U.S. Minister to France, John Armstrong, but with the European situation heating up and increasingly having impacts on the U.S., it seems only right that we become better acquainted with this representative of the Jefferson administration. As many U.S. diplomats and their families found at the time, living abroad would be an adjustment period for the Armstrongs. John had brought along to France his wife Alita, their six children, and Louis Livingston, the six-year-old son of Edward Livingston. With so many people to support, as well as the residents to maintain at the Hôtel de la Guiche on the Rive Gauche, or the left bank, Livingston found life in Paris much more expensive than it had been in New York. The Armstrongs also faced some health issues as they began their residence in France. Alita came into the situation with a long-term, quote, pulmonary complaint that improved after they were settled in Paris. As she improved, though, her husband began suffering what Armstrong biographer C. Edward Skeen described as, quote, a series of debilitating illnesses. He was afflicted by rheumatism, recurrent attacks of his old malarial fever, and an unusual amount of sickness arising from his weakened condition. Because of their health issues and limited finances, in the early days of their residence in Paris, the Armstrongs did not venture out much into society circles. They would still find time to socialize with the Marquis de Lafayette, and Armstrong was reunited with his friend Tarus Kosciuszko when he visited Paris. As time went on, they started to develop a circle of French friends as well. Meanwhile, the male children were put in boarding schools while their daughter Margaret, though residing with her parents, was also enrolled in a school. As the Armstrong family adapted to their new life, John Armstrong found himself picking up where his predecessor had left off, starting with the Claims Commission that the previous minister had fought with on numerous occasions. The board was nearing the end of its work in settling claims as provided under the Louisiana Purchase Treaty when Armstrong assumed his office, but there were still some important claims yet to be settled. In one of the cases, French Treasury Minister Francois Babet-Montbois wrote to Armstrong asking for information related to the claimants, and his response, deemed by Armstrong's biographer Skeen as, quote, indiscreet and ill-advised, as it raised doubts as to the legitimacy of the claim, provoked a negative response in the U.S. when Armstrong's letter was published and caused the minister to quickly backtrack his remarks. Ultimately, it would prove to be Armstrong's efforts in this case, which would secure $55,000 in compensation for the claimants, though the claimants would continue to complain about Armstrong, as the amount that they ended up with was not near the full $203,050 that they had sought. Despite this difficulty, as his predecessor Robert Livingston and Livingston's family finally departed from France six months after Livingston had handed over the office, John Armstrong Jr. was making the diplomatic post in Paris his own. There remains one more diplomatic post in Europe we must check in on before we part ways, the one in Madrid. With the failure of Monroe and Pinckney's negotiations and increasing concerns about Spanish designs in North America, U.S.-Spanish relations were at a low point. The American minister in Madrid, Charles Pinckney, had little motivation to engage the Spanish government as he was waiting for the arrival of his replacement, James Baldwin. After Monroe left for London, Pinckney waited and waited and waited. Towards the end of July, he wrote Secretary of State Madison that, quote, It is now near the month of August, and I am still obliged to stay here, contrary to my inclination and most ardent desire to return. August would come and go without Baldwin's arrival, as would September. For some reason that I've yet to discover, Baldwin, rather than going directly to Madrid, instead went to London first. 
After staying some time there, he then crossed the channel and went to Paris. This move, rather than upsetting the administration, would receive its approval. After the failure of Monroe and Pinckney's negotiations, Jefferson and his advisors had concluded that there was little to be gained by direct negotiations with the Spanish government. As with many things in Europe at that point, the true power lay with Emperor Napoleon, and it was clear that, without the approval of the French government, the Spanish would not make any agreement with the U.S. There still remained the matter of the U.S. minister to Spain waiting to hand off his office and head home. Thus, Baldwin directed his secretary, George Irving, to travel to Madrid and assume the post of Chargé d'Affaires, which would grant him interim control of the mission, allowing Pinckney to finally depart. As soon as he was able, Pinckney left Madrid and finally returned to his home in South Carolina in January 1806. For Pinckney, though, his homecoming would not be a pleasant one. Though he was seen as having been successful in his diplomatic efforts, Pinckney came home to find his personal affairs in disarray. According to Pinckney's biographer Marty Matthews, quote, a house in Charleston and properties at Georgetown had been sold and his plantation south of Columbia neglected. Creditors had filed more than 40 suits against him. His cousin's management of his affairs had been less than efficient. Though it's beyond our scope to go into details about how Pinckney dealt with this situation, I mention this to share something that was a common issue faced by diplomats in the early republic. Being so far from their home, diplomats found it nearly impossible to keep up with their personal finances and relied on family members or trusted friends to manage their affairs on their behalf. While at times this worked out fairly well, on a number of occasions, diplomats would return to find their finances in disarray and would have to take much time and effort to sort things out, if, of course, there was any coming back from the financial setbacks. On that bright note, I think this is as good of a place as any to wrap up this episode. In our next episode, we'll venture further into the year 1806 and some of the events that would come to shape the remainder of Jefferson's second term. Now, I will warn you that our next episode may sound a bit different, as this is the last episode that I'm recording at our current place. As I've mentioned on a special update and on social media, we're currently in the midst of moving to a new home. I already have my new recording space picked out, but I imagine that there will be some fine-tuning that will have to happen until the sound gets exactly to where I'd like it. My apologies for that and for the recent delay between episodes. For those of you listening to this well after its release, you won't really notice much of a difference. But for those listening at the time of the release, thank you for your patience as I balance a move, buying one home, selling another, and working a full-time job. I even managed to work in presenting at a conference into the mix and somehow have not pulled my hair out yet. I do consider it to be a minor miracle. With that said, I'd like to thank my husband Alex for providing the intro quote for this episode. Special thanks also to our audio editor Andrew Foncook and his work on this episode. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us to use their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this episode. More information about the Itinerant Band can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. On the website, you can also find the sources used for this episode in addition to past episodes and links to more information about every U.S. president to date. I also provide information on the website about how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support this podcast. Our patrons have already committed financial resources to keep this podcast available to all for free, so I thank them very much for their support. 
If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash presidencies and sign up. Beyond financial support, you can also show your support for the podcast by leaving a rating and review on either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or both. I greatly appreciate all the reviews I've received thus far as they help potential listeners to learn just why they should give presidencies a try. If you have any questions or comments, I can be reached by email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on social media. I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Last but certainly not least, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.